11, that's back in the day when people did that kind of stuff. He got involved in the inhumane African slave trade. He became hardened by his evil surroundings. He eventually outdid his companions in immorality, vulgarity, and blasphemy. But when he was 23 years old, his ship was caught in a severe storm. By then, he's now a captain of a slave ship. And fearing for his life, he cried out to God for mercy and was marvelously saved by God's grace. And we know the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. He knew he was an absolute wretch. He said, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Not wanting to ever forget the depths of sin from which he had been rescued by God's grace, he inscribed over the fireplace, no central heating in those days, over the fireplace of his study, he inscribed these words so that when he was preparing messages for you know Sunday and Wednesdays, there was a large plaque that said, but thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Now it's back in the King James, but basically it's saying, I was a slave in Egypt. I was a slave, and you set me free. And when he died, Newton left behind the epitaph that remains today on his gravestone. And it returns back to those twin themes, slavery from sin and unmerited redemption from God's grace. It says, John Newton, a clerk, once an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa. Yeah, he was actually apprehended by Africans and made to be a slave. He had all kinds of experiences. By the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. What an amazing epitaph. Basically, he was saying, I once was a terrible sinner, but God, in his marvelous grace, saved me and changed me. Now, unlike John Newton, the Galatian Christians were not remembering what they had been freed from. And they were now being threatened to go back into a form of slavery. And the Apostle Paul is writing to these believers. And as we're going to see today, it's an issue that we're still dealing with in the church for 2,000 years. And Paul was deeply disappointed with their immaturity and lack of discernment. He was not able to fathom how they could so quickly revert back <clears throat> to that which they had been delivered from. But they didn't quite understand it because it looked like a new form of liberation, but in reality, it was a bondage. And we're going to talk about that. So we see this warning from the book of Galatians, and we find it in chapter 3, verse 25, which is the introduction to chapter 4, where we're going to look at this morning. And in Galatians 3:25, it says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You know, a lot of scholars are wrestling with this verse. This is a very challenging text. Let me read it again. Galatians 3.25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The, this verse is at the center of a major debate that began at the inception of the church and has continued unabated today. It's just continued on. And it's simply on the one side... There are those who are contesting and, and, and arguing that we need to hear what the law has to say. In other words, we need to be under the law supervision. And on the other side are those who emphasize Christian freedom from the supervision of the law. And a lot of people are a little bit confused, you know, like, what's this all about? Well, the book of Galatians is primarily one long argument from beginning to end with Paul making an appeal to the freedom that Christ has secured on our behalf. And so in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, it is for freedom, this is the conclusion, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now this year in our church, we've had a theme. It's called, you know, live free. And live free, I don't think we fully grasp it, I think the message of that is simply this, that you and I can live in absolute freedom. And most people aren't living in freedom. People that are not believers, they're living under the law of sin and death. And if you're a Christian, a lot of people are living as slaves rather than as sons and daughters. 
And they're, they're locked up on the inside. They don't understand. They, they, they don't understand, am I really pleasing God? There's kind of a question mark inside of a lot of hearts. Am I really doing what God wants me to do? And I think today we're going we're gonna to come to a, a kind of a, a, a major epiphany. That's my prayer for you. A major epiphany of how you and I can live a life of dynamic, vital Christianity where we can really walk in freedom and watch what God is really all about in our lives and what he wants to do, which is way beyond what most of us in this room are even thinking about. Most of us have really limited what God wants to do in and through our lives. Now, this is the argument, and it can be summarized how that Christ came to bring the Gentiles a law-free gospel. A law-free gospel. Paul has been stating a number of things in answer to his critics who are challenging that the Galatians have to obey the law, particularly the Jewish identity markers. So let me explain this to you. What defines a person as a Jewish person? Well, let me explain. Number one, that you observe the Sabbath. That's part of being Jewish. Jewish people observe Sabbath. Another thing is if you're a male, you're circumcised. That's a Jewish identification marker. We need to understand, this makes you Jewish. Another thing is the kind of foods you eat. You eat kosher foods, clean foods. So there are these, these, these things that help you identify. So when you see that, you say, this person's a Jewish person. They're observing Sabbath, they're circumcised, and they're eating certain foods. They're dis- purposely creating boundaries in their life so that people can see that they are different than other people. They have these identity markers that say that they're Jewish. What defines a Christian? What defines a Christian? Do we have to have those same identity markers? No, that's, that's Jewish. So what defines a Christian? A Christian is someone who has faith that Jesus is more than just a man, but that he came, he's God in the flesh, and that by trusting in him, we have been taken from our place of darkness, sin, and death, and we now have eternal life. And so the identity marker of a Christian, here it comes, is that we have love one for another. That's the true identity marker of a Christian. And that we even have love for our enemies. Isn't this amazing? You know, and so really, you know, we, we, we don't understand this sometimes. We think, well, oh, I can just do what I want. No, you can't. If you and I are not demonstrating love, we're not identifying with Christ. That's an identity marker. You and I have to literally love people. We even have to love our enemies, you know. And some people have a hard time with this. You know, we we get upset with people. You know, we're not that loving sometimes. Come on now. You know, we're not always that nice to our spouse or our children. Come on, I'm just being honest. I'm throwing this stuff out. This is is the identity marker. So we're at the core of the issue, but what people often do is focus on the outward observance of law, missing the spirit of it. And we do this all the time. It's a lot easier to observe law than it is to live in the Spirit. And we're going to see that. You say, what do you mean it's easier to, you know, observe the law? Do you know it's a lot easier? The law says do not steal, right? Later on, I'm going to quote a speaker. He says this, do not steal. Or Jesus, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, well, that's what the law says. But let me tell you what I think. The law of love says don't even lust after a woman in your heart. How many know it's a lot easier just to refrain from adultery than to deal with this issue of even having the wrong thoughts in your mind? How many think it's a lot harder to live in the law of love? You know, example, do not steal is the law, but in the New Testament, Paul says, no, no, you don't just not steal. You have to go to work and learn how to give to people. How many see that's a higher requirement? So a lot of people think, well, I'm a Christian now. I can do as I please. I go, no, you can't. You're living under the law of love. It's a higher ethic. And the work of the Spirit is calling us to this, this interesting, distinctive marker in our life. And I, then there's those other people on the other side of the equation, and they basically, you know, they're on the other extreme. See, there's, there's some people say, no, you've got to keep the law, and it's all external. And it's a lot easier to identify if you're doing things or you're not doing things right, right? Because it's outward. We always like these outward things. Well, yeah, you don't do this or you do this. And we have these convictions, and then we can see what people are doing, and then we make judgments on people. 
It's really hard to judge the heart. It gets a little more difficult. You sometimes can because people are doing the wrong thing and you know it's coming from the heart, right? If you commit murder, it's because you have hatred in your heart, Jesus says. So you can see some of the heart issues later on after they're fully manifested. But initially, you don't see it. You don't see envy until you see the manifestation of it later. But the initial parts of it, you don't see it. Same thing with lust, all of these things. And, and then you have these other people on the other extreme who basically say, well, I don't have to keep the law, and I just do what I want. I'm under grace. And, the, you know, and the theologically, there's a term for this. They're called antinomianists. And it's a very fancy word because it comes out of the Greek language. Anti means no. Nomi, nomian is speaking of the law. No law. I'm not under the law. I can do what I want. But the problem with doing, you know, Paul talks about if you're sinning, if you're sinning, you're not free. How many know that if you're sinning, you're not free? You're actually going back under the slavery of sin. And so Paul writes in Titus, he says, you know, grace doesn't excuse sin. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, excuse me, and godly lives in this present age. How many already know godliness, or sorry, grace is teaching us something? It's teaching us that you can't be at either extreme, really, when you get right down to it. Actually, I've just been teaching a whole course on the spiritual disciplines. I taught, you know, leadership one week and the disciplines in the other week, and I just said, most people don't realize this. The Christian life is a very disciplined life. You're under the control of the Holy Spirit. You're just not doing your own thing. That's the problem with most Christians. They're not really under the control of the Spirit. They're just doing their thing. And then there's a lot of defeat and, you know, there's a lot of frustration that's going on in people's lives. I want you to come into freedom. I want you to experience the freedom that Jesus secured for you and me on the cross. Now, he uses this argument of these agitators and he brings Abraham into the equation. He says, listen, Abraham, and everybody likes Abraham, but Abraham had a very simple thing going with God. God's, God promised Abraham something. Abraham simply believed it, and God imputed to him righteousness. How many think that's amazing? And he's basically saying that what Abraham is all about is what the gospel is all about, that when you and I simply believe what God has said that he's done for us, that we'll experience the result of that belief, and that's eternal life. We just simply believe, and then we experience what God says. And that's true of many things that he says in his word. We simply believe the word of God, and we begin experiencing it. It's really powerful. So, in the first uh, 12 verses of chapter 4, we find three ideas that show how the law actually enslaves people rather than frees them. And I want to look at those three, because, you know, a lot of people, this is what they get into. And I had a great conversation with somebody after the first service, and they said, I want to be free. We had a lot of people respond. Great response in the first service. And you'll see why. Let me just take a look at this. Okay, so the three ideas that reveal that the law enslaves. The first one is actually taken from the analogy of childhood. Childhood has constraints. People who are children are not free. Think about it. They are supervised by adults, usually, right? Now, if a child's free, it's because somebody's not doing a good parenting job. <laughs> in our culture, that could happen once in a while. But generally speaking, children are not just doing their own thing. They just don't go out and make decisions. Can you imagine if we just, you know, children are born, they're about two years old, we just turn them loose? Left to themselves. Could you imagine the kind of immature and harmful decisions that they would be rendering? It'd be awful, right? We would look at those parents and say, you're totally irresponsible. That's a terrible thing to do. So Paul's describing this condition of living under law as that of being a child, okay? And he says, even though a child may have an incredible inheritance coming to him or her, that child is not free to make those future decisions. They're still under the care of their parent or their guardian. So look at verse one. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different than a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. 
so also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Now Paul uses the analogy of childhood as a life under the law. And what we need to understand is what life was like for children in Paul's day. And I'm going to say right now, it's totally different than our day. I think a few months, a month or so ago, I was speaking on the difference between children in first century and today, and that the people in the first century did not value their children the way we do. They didn't cherish them. And you go, why didn't they do that, Pastor? Because there was a high mortality rate amongst children. And so you had very few children surviving. So if you got attached to them right away, you'd be living in grief all the time. More children were dying than surviving. How many say that would be painful? How many, can you imagine? You, you and I can't even relate to that because we have such a high value on our kids, right? But can you imagine just having that distance and so you just even notice them until, you know, they got to a certain age where they were actually surviving and making it. And so they were just ignoring these people, basically. John MacArthur Jr. says, in the ancient world, the division between childhood and adulthood was much more definite than it is in most societies today. In other words, the dividing line when a person became an adult was really well-defined in these ancient societies. Until the age of 12, a Jewish boy was under direct and absolute control of his father. But at the bar mitzvah, we've heard of that, Jewish bar mitzvah, that means the son of the law. He's coming of age. He's becoming a man. He's a man under the law. You know, it says, this bar mitzvah was observed on the first Sabbath after his 12th birthday. And the father's, the, the child's father would pray this prayer. It says, blessed be thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility of this boy. I'm done with him now. He's responsible, okay? And then the boy would pray, and he would say, Oh my God and God of my Father on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood. In other words, he says, From this day forward, I'm taking responsibility for my actions. Now you gotta, you got to think about this for a minute. i got to help our culture a little bit. We have a problem. Let me explain what our problem is. We want privilege with no responsibility, okay? Isn't that what our culture is like? We don't want to take any responsibility. We don't want, you know, we don't want any commitments. We don't want to, you know, we want to have an entitlement life. We just want all privileges and no responsibility. That's a sign of immaturity, okay? When you and I get a privilege, there's a corresponding responsibility that goes with it. Every single privilege you have, there's a corresponding responsibility. And listen to what I'm going to say now. God is our judge, and he will be all of our judges. When you and I stand before God, he's going to look at us, and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? To whom much is given, much is required. So you and I can be enjoying a blessed, privileged life, but God's going, yeah, what are you doing with it? It's not just about you and I, oh, it's all about me, I'm enjoying all these good things in life. No, when God brings things our way, we have to say, God, I'm your steward. What do you want me to do with all this? How am I handling my time, energy, resources, my whole life? It's a whole different ballgame. I have these great privileges from God, but I have this corresponding responsibility. And you see that reflected in this prayer. He says here, um, so basically... I humbly, he goes on to pray, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of my actions towards thee. Wow, this is a 12-year-old praying this prayer. This is serious stuff, people. How many get it? We're taking on responsibility here. You know, in ancient Greek, a boy was under his father's control until the age of 18, a little closer to our thinking. At that time, a festival would be held and the boy would assume special responsibilities to his clan or to his city and they would take some of his long hair, cut it off, and offer up to the god Apollos. He was devoting himself to that god. At the Roman ceremony, boys would take their toys and at a similar ceremony, girls would take their dolls and offer them in a sacrifice to the gods as a symbol of putting their childhood behind them. And it was to that custom that Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. In other words, I put those things behind me. I'm now a, per, a, st- a full-grown adult. I have adult responsibilities now. 
They were well aware that as long as the heir was a child, he was under conditions that did not differ at all from that of being a slave. Okay? But William Henderson points out he was, a, he was an heir by legal right, but not by fact. While a child, he was under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Families would assign certain capable, generally trusted slaves to act as guardians, and then they would have tutors. And they were responsible over the child until they were grown. Along with their tutor, those family slaves would have virtually full charge of the child's education, training, and welfare. It was a designated responsibility to these slaves. So the child was subservient to them and could do nothing without their permission and go nowhere without their companionship. For all practical purposes, the child did not differ at all from a slave under whom he was being trained. Okay, we're not moving as fast. Okay, there we go. So what Paul is now doing is taking this concept. Okay, everybody understands it in the first century. We don't get it because not, that's not part of our culture. This was their culture. So Paul now makes an argument based on these cultural practices and he says basically this, that the law is like a guardian. It totally restricts you. There's no freedom when you're a child. There's no freedom under the supervised life. That life is meant to educate you until you become an adult. And he says... Now, Paul says, now the law restricts and supervises until Christ comes. In other words, Christ is the point in which a person is freed from what they were underneath. Christ being understood as the coming of age of a child when the need for supervision is no longer needed. So what is even more fascinating is how Paul in this text places those under the law with those who are without law, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They had no law. But they were under the false religious systems. And now he does this. He puts both those systems together and he says they're both bondage. That's very interesting, isn't it? Both bondage. Wow. Notice verse 3. He's speaking to the Jewish condition before Christ. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And now he describes what the Gentiles were underneath, the same principles in verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature are not gods. In other words, these Gentiles. Just remember something. There was, atheism did not really exist in the ancient world, okay? Get that out of your mind. Very few people were atheists. They were all religious. They all believed in gods of some sort, okay? Does everybody follow this? And so if you're not worshiping Yahweh, the true and the living God, you're worshiping a whole you know, plethora of gods. You're, you're an animist. You worship the spirits and the force. You worship something. There was no non-worshippers. Like, you know, like, that's why people think today we've matured, we've grown up, we've moved beyond this you know, elementary element of life. But people in those days, no atheists. If there was, there was, they were just rare. That would have been so rare to find somebody who was an atheist. So, What does he mean by this? He says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, you believed that these principles, these elementary spirits were God. Sun, moon, stars, you know, woods, rocks, trees, all kinds of stuff. But now that you know God, or excuse me, are rather known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserably principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? What, what Paul is saying is, he's comparing, he's, he's linking being under the law with being a Gentile worshiping demons, okay? He's putting the same thing, he says, both of these things leave you in bondage, and he says, hey, now that you've become Christians, there's a bunch of Judaizers out there that are saying to you, you need to have the same Jewish identification markers in order to be a true Christian. He says, that's nonsense. All you're gonna do is go back into the state of being in bondage, just as if you were when you were a Gentile. Remember how you were in bondage to these other things? He says, you're, you're just going into the same bondage. He's warning them, don't do it. It's not gonna bring freedom in your life. 
And, he's, and why is that? And this is, I love the way John Stott says this. And here the law appears to be equated with the elemental spirits of the universe. And in verse 9, these elemental spirits are called weak and beggarly. Weak because the law has no strength to redeem us and beggarly because it has no wealth with which to bless us. In other words, the law is not going to set you free. The law's role is not freedom, folks. That's Christ's role. The law's role is to supervise. The law's role is to instruct you, educate you. It's not going to bring freedom into your life. So in the margins of a New English Bible, it takes this as an elementary idea, as belonging to this world as basic moral principles. The second way in which the word elements can be interpreted is they were often associated in the ancient world with either the physical elements like earth, wind, air, and water, or with the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars which control the seasonal festivals observed on earth. Now, let me just point out something to you. What this means is that people thought that the aligning of stars shaped destinies. There's a word for that today. Do you know what it is? Astrology. Not astronomy, astrology, okay? And you see it all the time because every newspaper, they actually have people, they... They, they, they read the stars and they write a page and they tell you where, based on the day you're born and all these different times, they give you what they call a, a horoscope. Now, you say, well, people don't believe this stuff, Pastor. Stop. I'm just in India. Do you know that the Hindu people, they will not get married to anybody until they, they have to set a date. The priest has to read their stars, set the right date for them to get married. And Dr. Thomas was saying, yeah, sometimes they'll even get married at 2 a.m. Because that's the, when the stars tell them that's the right time. And so they have their marriage ceremony at 2 a.m. How many like to get, get married at 2 a.m. in the morning? <laughs> but, you know, they're following the stars, right? And you go, well, oh, these people, you know, they don't know any better. Hey, these guys are engineers, doctors. Very intelligent people. Now, you say, well, yeah, but that's the Eastern people. We're not like that in the West. Oh, slow down. Slow down a little bit. We have so bought into, you know, they've exported Hinduism into the West. Big time. It is so prevalent today. The New Age movement is so strong. That's actually just a new name for Hinduism. And we're, we're eating it up. We got yoga. That's Hinduism. I'm trying to t explain some things to you. And so if we're sitting down here, you know, thinking that our destiny is determined by the stars, let me ask a question. We're under the elementary principles. That's super, it's not even superstition. We're under a power. And we don't even know it. And I don't care how educated you are. You are being seduced by a demonic force. And you don't even realize it. Let me tell you something. God knows the day you're going to die. He's the one that's determining and defining our lives, folks. You and I have to learn to trust in Almighty God. You know, it's about living by faith in the goodness and love and mercy of Almighty God. You know, I've just been finishing a course on the book of Proverbs. You know, I've done a lot of studying in there, and I came away with this phenomenal thought about wisdom literature, and it's simply this. God's wisdom is incomprehensible. What that, I'm just basically saying to you is you and I can never fully grasp the magnitude of the wisdom of God. My, my mind is too small to somehow attain to understand all there is of the wisdom of God. Is this making sense? And, you know, and I don't think I'm the only person with this limitation. I think every human being has the same limitation. You and I are just not as smart as God. And that's why in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding because you are not as smart as God. Okay, do not lean in your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. You don't need to read the stars. You need to trust Christ. Okay, so I'm, I'm painting a picture for us. So, you know, because a lot of times as Christians, you know, I didn't even know that was wrong, Pastor. A lot of Christians, we're just ignorant. I'm saying, I'm trying not to let you be ignorant. So if that's what you've been doing is reading the stars, you say, Lord, deliver me from that demonic force. Set me free from that. I'm gonna just trust you. You're gonna take care of me. 
So how can a bondage to the law be called a bondage to evil spirits? I'm glad you asked that question. Is Paul suggesting that the law was an evil design of Satan? Of course not, because we read in Galatians, we read that the law was given to Moses by God and not to Satan, and mediated through angels, good angels, not evil spirits. So what Paul means is that the devil took this good thing called the law and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. Just as during a child's minority, his guardian may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways in which his father never intended. So the devil has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. He uses it to condemn people. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac deceiving people into supposing that from its fearful bondage there's no escape. Let me move on to the second idea that reveals that the law enslaves. And it's the difference that coming to age makes. You know, if we're under a constraint because we're at an age of minority, what happens when we come to the age of majority? Well, I love this. Only those who have come to maturity are free from the boundaries or limitations that childhood places upon a person. And Dr. Gordon Fee says it this way, the law had a limiting understanding of righteousness. It teaches us not to steal, but the Spirit says it's more than a matter of not stealing. It's learning how to give to those in need. That's why the law is so easy. Do those limiting things and you're in. In other words, I just follow these outward things, do's and don'ts, and I, I know where I stand. It's all external. But the Spirit says, walk by the Spirit. Let your life express the fruit of the Spirit. Who wants to express long-suffering? Who signs up? Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I want to be a long-suffering. That means you, you have to put up with something and suffer for a long time. How many like suffering? Any, any takers? How many like to suffer for a long time? But that's the fruit of the Spirit, that we put up with things. Poor Patty. You know, she had the first, last day and a half, harassment. They were chanting Mark, you were there, aimed the speakers at the house, and they went a day and a half. Straight noise, chanting. It sounds like mental cruelty. You're trying to sleep through these guys, you know, and they crank that thing up, and they go all night long. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I must, be, I must be getting used to India now, because I'm, I'm going to sleep through it. I don't know. I'm just, whatever. Do your thing, you know. The law brings rigidity and legalism. The church keeps redefining the law, thereby rejecting the spirit. Here in Galatians 4, Paul describes what that coming to age and what coming to maturity looks like. And John Stott says it this way. Man's bondage under the law continued for about 1,300 years. And then Christ came. Listen to what it says. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. That's what we're celebrating, called Christmas to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. When the time had fully come, when was that? When all the conditions were reached, the fulfillment of the prophetic announcements were accomplished. God sent his son into the world. The stage was set. Christ came. When the fullness of time had come, God did two things. And I love what John Stott says about this. God's purpose was both to redeem and to adopt, not just to rescue from slavery, but to make slaves into sons. I like that. How many like that? He wants to make you his child. You know? Here we have the essence of the gospel, the incarnation, the Christmas story, how God became a man, born of a woman by the Spirit of God, born under the law. Here we find Jesus, born a Jew, born to keep the law. His, his was the only perfect, sinless life, a life that kept the law. You and I can't keep it. Good luck. He is described as a savior, a redeemer. To redeem means to buy back those who were enslaved. Here we read that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. The fact that Jesus had to redeem those under law suggests that the law did not bring freedom. Are we getting it? John MacArthur says it this way, when the law had fully accomplished its purpose of showing man his utter sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness... God ushered a new era of redemption. He provided the righteousness for man that man could not provide for himself. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute so that you and I could be in a right relationship with God. Do you know what I love? 
When I stand before God, he doesn't just see me. I love the Chinese character. He sees the lamb above the man. He sees Christ who died for me. He sees the work of Calvary. He doesn't see what I'm doing or not doing because I mess up. Don't you ever mess up? Of course we all mess up. Thank God he's looking at Jesus. Hallelujah. And then it says, we look at the work of the Son, but we also read here about the work of the Spirit. God sent the Son into the work, into the world, has now sent the Spirit into our hearts. It says, verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son in our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You know, I'm reading a book, and they're trying to talk about all these, it's an apologetics book, and trying to describe, how do you know you're a Christian? Here's the good news. The Spirit is in you. The Spirit is in you and says, I belong to the Father. There's a Spirit inside of us that says, all of a sudden, the things that I once desired, I don't even interest in those things. And the things that I once had no interest in, like reading my Bible and going to church and worshiping God, all of a sudden, I have a desire for these things. How did that happen? The Spirit. The Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of the Most High God. Isn't that amazing? That our spirit cries out, Abba, Father. We have this. And, and then I love this part. He says, and has made you also an heir. I want you to know that you've been, your name has been written in God's will. Yeah, there's a lot of people that would be nice written in their will, right? Some of us say, I'll never be written in anybody's will. But here's the good news. If you're a child of God, you've been written in the Father's will. That's the greatest will going. I'm so glad I'm, my name is in that will. Hallelujah. And then I love this part, what John Stott says about the work of the Spirit. He says, and he, speaking of God the Father, sent his Son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his Spirit that we might have the experience of it. Now, yeah, a few months ago, or I don't know, a few number of weeks ago, I preached on experience and understanding. You know, I said, it's great to have understanding, but no experience, you know, you're just dead. If you have the experience with no understanding, you actually become a fanatic, and worse, probably a heretic. You know, what we need is to have an experience with God. We need an experience, and then we need the understanding. We need both. But here we see so many struggle. Many have an intellectual ascent to the person of the Holy Spirit, but they've never recognized the authority and presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. A number of years ago, I was reading about Dr. Stephen Alford. He related a powerful testimony of a life-changing event in his life. You know what he said? This was just after the Second World War. He was doing ministry, and he said, you know, and you have to remember, this guy's not a Pentecost. He's not a charismatic but he finally said, you know what, I just set time aside. I rented a room for 11 days. I took every book I had on the Holy Spirit. I just started studying on the Holy Spirit. And he said, eventually, he said, I searched the scriptures regarding the nature, the character, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he came to a life-impacting understanding that the Holy Spirit is God, not just in theory, but in reality. And Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He says, 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And he left his room that day and he booked out and the lady at the reception desk said, Dr. Alford, something's happened to you. He looked like he'd been in a revival. And he said, I have been. And he started sharing what happened. He got a, a, a new epiphany of the work of the Spirit. And he left there and began preaching on the person and work of the Spirit. And a large number of people were there gathered, one of which was Billy Graham. And after the message, they chatted and met in Wales where Billy Graham was preaching. And Billy Graham was struggling at this point in his ministry, really struggling. You know, he was having a hard time preaching and the crowds were diminishing and, and after staying together for two days and studying and sharing and weeping and crying out to God, Billy Graham said this. He said, I see that Christ cannot be experienced in one's life apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he had a, he had a new revelation of the person of the Holy Spirit and he said it was a turning point in his life. Is that powerful? God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. It's God's spirit that makes God real to us. It is the work of the spirit that delivers us from bondage, from slavery, and helps us live in victory, freedom, and in worship. And let me move on to my final point, and it's simply this. The idea that reveals that the law in slaves is reflected in concern for struggling believers. Paul knew from personal experience that the law 
does not bring a freedom in a person's life. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a keeper of the law as he understood it. He was zealous. But you know what? He was killing people. Paul's past experience shapes his understanding of the futility of trying to keep the law. He had lived there before and realized that rituals and regulations can never make a person godly or holy. Paul, who had lived to keep the law, was not free until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then he was set free. And now he says here in Galatians 4, 8 through 11, Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning your back to these weak and miserly principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my effort on you. Just like the Jewish believers were slaves to the law, the Gentiles were slaves to idolatry, but it was a radically different slavery from each other, but it's still slavery. It's still slavery, right? Paul is saying, you Gentiles didn't even know God. Though the Jews knew God, they were still under the slavery of the law. Here is the theme, is knowing God versus not knowing God. Sorry. Or rather, being known by God. It's not about knowing God or not knowing God. He says, rather, it's God knowing us. In other words, God revealing himself to us. So even though the Jews know about God, they have Torah, they have law, they know about God, it says God has to be, it's not knowing God, he's saying. Rather, it's being known by God. Christian conversion is not so much our coming to know God as God making himself known to us. You see the difference? God wants to reveal himself to us. Paul makes his appeals to them. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. That's an interesting statement. How did Paul become like them? What was Paul talking about here? When did Paul become like the Gentiles? Well, I like what Dr. Fee says. Formerly, Paul was under the law, but he is no longer under law that's what he meant when he said he became like the Gentile Galatians. Now he's pleading with them to become like him without being under law. That's where you need to be. Now, I want to close with a story, and then we're going to pray. Many religious people are in bondage. It's true. I've seen it over the years. Really hung up. They're in bondage to religion. John Wesley, many of us know who he is, a great preacher of the 18th century. In his postgraduate Oxford days, he was in a group called the Holy Club. They were meeting together. I want to tell you what his life was like. He was the son of a clergyman, and he was a clergyman. He was an ordained Anglican priest. He was orthodox in belief, religious in practice, uptight in conduct, and full of good works. He and his friends would visit the inmates of the prisons and workhouses of Oxford. They took pity on the slum children of the city, providing food with them, clothing, and, and education. They observed Saturdays as the Sabbath as well as Sunday. Wanted to make sure he got both of them, right? They went to church. He participated in communion. They gave. They searched scriptures. They fasted. They prayed. But they were the bound and the fetters of their own religion, for they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous instead of putting their trust in Christ. A few years later, John Wesley, in his own words, came to trust in Christ and in him alone for salvation. And he was given an inward assurance that his sins had been taken away. And after this, looking back to his pre-conversion experience, he wrote, he said, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. Christianity is a religion of sons, not slaves. That's powerful, folks. I want us to stand. Here's what I'm going to say to us today. This life is impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Cannot be lived. But you know, this morning in the first service, this is what I challenged the congregation with. How many here you'd like to live free? You want to be free. I want to live free. I want to live free from addictions. How many Christians, it's just amazing to me, how many Christians are living in bondage? They're addicted to all kinds of junk. You know what that is? Because we're not walking in the Spirit. It's, it's real simple. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? 
If you're walking in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. If we're fulfilling the desires of the sinful nature, we're not walking in the Spirit. It's really beautiful deduction. It's the way it works. Here's what I'm going to ask you. How many here, you would say, you know what? I want to so trust God with my life. I want, to, I want all the fears in my life to be removed. I want to just give, I want to abandon my soul to God. I want to fully trust him, and I want to live out his agenda. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. The moment you make that self-surrendering prayer to God, and you allow his Holy Spirit to have control in your life, you're saying, okay, I'm going to just do what you want. Just whatever you show me, I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm just going to trust you, God. I'm going to get into your, you know, I'm, I'm not taking, throw your brains away and, you know, I'm, I'm talking about getting to know God, walking with God, walking in the Spirit. And what's going to happen if you, if you live this kind of life? What's going, to go, what's going to happen? You're going to start doing things you never dreamed you would do. You're going to start going to places you never thought you'd go. God's going to start working in your life in a way that you've never had Him work before. This is the Christian life, the way it was meant to be lived. Most people are living as slaves not living as sons and daughters. How many here say, you know what, I want to be free. I want to live the kind of life you're describing. I want to live in victory, and I want to see God's agenda lived in and through my life. I want you just to slip up. Right now, come to the front. We're going to pray. Just slip up. You say, that's me. I want to be, I want to be God's person. No matter how young, how old, I just want to surrender right now to the work of the Spirit. Billy Graham's life was changed when he realized that the Holy Spirit isn't just a theological idea, it's a living person with a living reality that he begins to have access and authority in our lives. We just say, God, I want you to do this work in me. I want to, I want to, I want to, I'm going to relinquish my fears. How many of you say right now, I want to let go of all my fears? Just raise your hand. That's you. I want to let go of all the fears that I have in my life right now. I want to trust Christ fully with my life. I want to let Him be the one that determines my agenda. Not my will, but yours be done. I want to let Him determine it. And I want to just see where God takes me. I want to see how God will use me way beyond my human cap capabilities. Actually, people are going to be wondering, how in the world are you doing this? Remember the religious leaders looked at Peter and John. They said they couldn't figure it out. How could these people do this? And they realized they'd been with Jesus. When you and I surrender our lives to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we'll be with Jesus things will begin to happen in our lives. I believe that. God's going to set you free from your fears. God's going to allow you to do things and see things you've never done or seen before. I believe that. And you're going to go to places you never dreamed of. If somebody would have told me as a young person, just giving my life to Christ, you're going to go minister in India over and over again. Go, I, I could never see that. You know, I had such an experience this time with these young men and w this one young gal, 13 in my class. Some people go, well, why didn't you go to India and preach to thousands? I go, I don't, I don't believe that's the way to change the world. See, I have a Jesus thinking. Jesus concentrated on 12 people, and he changed the world. And that's all I needed. I had 13 young people fully committed to Christ, willing to die for the gospel. And I was speaking into their lives every single day. And at the end of five hours, I'd say, what did God say to you? And I'd have each one share. And it was, it was lights out, folks. It was so powerful. And at the end, when I left, I almost broke down and cried. And I felt their love. And they said to me, we've never heard this before. The way you've explained these things to us, We've never heard this kind of an understanding. It was so practical. They were so happy, and they were so appreciative. And boy, were they polite. They were polite. Mark, you've been there. Sir, when I walked in the room, they all stood. They, didn't st they stood until I said, yeah, you can be seated now. Then they sat down. Talk about, we got a lot to learn from other cultures, folks. I'm serious. 
Our culture is broken in a lot of places. But we think we're smart. No, we're not that smart. God is smart. God is smart. And I'm going to pray for you right now. And you know what what we're unleashing right now? We're unleashing transformation. We're unleashing transformation today in your life. Because you said, yes, Lord, I want to be controlled by your spirit. I'm going to walk in the spirit. I want to let you fulfill your will. I want you to, I want to live out your agenda, not mine. And who knows where that's going to take me. And you say, well, yeah, but I'm too old. Listen, the last days of your life can be the greatest days. The last, the last few years of your life, you may accomplish more in those few years than all of your life put together. Don't minimize. This culture, our culture, has got some really funny ideas that are unbiblical. I'm going to tell you right now. I'll tell you that right now. It's very unbiblical. God is not done with you until you leave the planet. Did you hear what I just said? God is not done with you until you are with him. So don't you decide, I'm going to do this with my life. It's not your life. Today you came forward. It's not your life now. You're saying, God, I'm giving you my body. It's, it's your life. It's your life. It's not me that lives, but it's Christ living in me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ living in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the Son of God who loved me and died for me. You died for me, so I will live for you. That's what we're saying today. You died for me, Lord. I'm going to live for you. And I'm going to live free. You are going to be the freest people on the planet because you're walking in the Spirit. There's a lot of religious people, they're in bondage. There's a lot of people that don't know God and living in sin. There's a lot of Christians that are saying, I'm a Christian, but they're living in sin and they're not free. They're addicted, they're in bondage. But you and I can walk in freedom and we can see God's purposes lived out through us. So Lord, I pray today, everything that I've been saying right now, living in the Spirit, Lord, may that be us. May we live in the freedom of your Spirit, O God. May we fulfill your purposes and your will and your agenda, O God. I just pray right now that you'll set set us free from all fear. I pray today that you'll set us free, Father, from all of our hang-ups and all of our hurts. And Lord, all of the things that, you know, we say in our mind, I can't do this. Lord, it's not us that's going to do it. It's going to be you. Hallelujah. It's not how smart we are. It's not how educated we are. Lord, it's the fact that we're surrendered to you and we're a vessel willing to be used by you. And now I pray, Father, the distinctive characteristic of these people is your divine love. May love flow from us. May love flow from us, O God, in a powerful new way in our lives. And may we have an impact. May this be an epiphany moment. May this be transformational in the lives of these, your children, O God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And amen. And amen. God bless you. Be transformed.